The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop watching Flash videos on your iPhone. Huh? What's that? It's... it's not available. Never mind. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 487 with guests Dana Groff and Yossi Levanoni. Recorded live Tuesday, September 8th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, a man who claims he remembers the 60s, when he was three, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here, as we always are, twice a week for you. What's up, Richard? Uh, not too much. You know, summer's kind of over. We're into the fall. In fact, likely when this show's published, we're traveling somewhere because I think we're traveling all of the fall. Yeah. Well, Bulgaria, Amsterdam, Poland. Uh, we're going to Sweden. Yeah. Berlin, all Las that. Vegas. Las Vegas, LA. We uh gotta do something about the five hundredth show here. Yes, I'm you're exactly right. It's coming up, it's gonna be the end of PDC, the five hundredth show that'll be published. So we 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 thought we would do something really interesting for the five hundredth show. We want some dot net rocks stories from you. So if uh, you know what that means is that if you have a funny story around .NET Rocks, you know you showed it to somebody for the first time and then an earthquake happened, or something funny uh, or interesting, it doesn't have to be funny, but just you got something to say, we want to hear from you, our fans. So give us a call toll free inside the United States at eight seven seven four nine two six seven five one. Outside the United States, you can call us at eight six zero. Four four seven eight eight three two, and just leave a message. That's all there is to it. Leave us a message and let us know what's going on. Say something nice. We did record five hundred of these things, after all. Yeah. Hey, let's get into better know a framework. All right. Better know a framework, of course, is this little uh, bit that I do where I shine a little light on a dark corner of the .NET framework in hopes that over time. You'll find uh, find it interesting enough to go look things up, and at least you'll know what's there, even if you don't understand what we're talking about. 
So today I thought I would get an apropos uh, class, and so I went into the system threading namespace and found the system threading interlocked class. Ah. The interlocked class, in a nutshell, allows you to read and write integers, increment and decrement integers, without uh, being reentrant. So uh, you basically can use, uh, and there's a great little example here, you can use the exchange method to exchange uh, a shared integer with a value. And you can also increment and decrement. So you can set it, you can increment it, you can decrement it, and it's thread safe. Cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And very timely. And very timely, yes. And if that sounds tedious, it is. And that's <laughs> that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. But uh, but before we get to that, uh, Richard, you have an email. I do indeed. And you know the one I'm going to read because I know you were interested in it when it came in too. Yeah, of course. Both commented on it. it the subject line, Musicians as Software Developers. Yep. Carl and Richard, Carl has mentioned several times that musicians make good software developers. I've been reading Chad Fowler's book, The Passionate Programmer, Creating a Remarkable Career in Software Development, and he has a theory on this. Nobody becomes a musician because they want to get a job and lead a stable and comfortable life. <laughs> <laughs> the music industry is too cruel an environment for this to be a feasible plan. Oh, speaking my, speak my life there, man. There you go. People who become professional musicians all want to be great. Right. At least when starting out, greatness is binary in the music world. Mm -hmm. A musician wants to either be great and famous for it or not do it at all. I'm often asked why it is that there are so many good musicians who are also good software developers, and that's the reason. It's not because their brain functions are the same or that they're both detail-oriented and both require creativity. It's because a person who wants to be great is far more likely to become great than someone else who wants to just do their job. And even if we can't all be Martin Fowler, Linus Torvalds, or the pragmatic programmers, setting a high target makes it likely that we'll at least land somewhere far above average. Love the show. Please give up the good work. Jeremy Clark, Anaheim, California. Thank you, Jeremy. Interesting, but I don't believe it. You don't agree, huh? No. I know. I think that Chad Fowler guy's onto something. I think the desire to be great goes across all jobs. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know. Yeah, it's certainly part of it. Says someone who's a talented musician and a great programmer, so you're totally biased. You're not qualified to comment. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, we'll send you out a mug. Thanks for the great email. And if you've got any questions, concerns, ideas, commentary on the shows, criticisms, just want to say hi, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Our guests today are Dana Groff and Yossi Levanoni. Dana is the Senior Program Manager, and Yossi is the Principal Development Lead for the Software Transactional Memory Project in Microsoft's Developer Division. Welcome, guys. Hi there. Hello, boy. We've been waiting for this show for a long time. Oh yeah. Well, that's great, and you gave us a great lead-in when you start talking about interlocked operations. Yeah, that was that's what we call a meatball in the business. <laughs> 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 so tell us what's wrong with that whole model of threading, and how does software transactional memory make multi-threaded programming better? There's nothing wrong with that model, but let me throw something at you. Let's say I have five integers I need to update, okay? And I right. need to do it in an, what we call an atomic operation. It means I need to do all five of them at once in right. my thread, observable from another thread. So let's say I've got two threads. They're looking at the same five integers. 
and I need to update all of them. Well, I can't use an interlock operation because I can only do one integer. So I have to lock everything. And I have to remember to use that lock. And, you know, if I use one lock for all five, it's great. But let's say I use, well, one lock for each. And I better do it in the right order because I might have yet a third thread that's also doing the updates. And now we get into deadlocks if I have problems with orders. Now, integers are one thing, but, you know, the reality is that the, the world is filled with complex data structures um, and lots of different locks and lots of different threads. And sometimes you don't even know that you've got a thread who's actually using a particular data structure and you've got another thread that's observing it. And so, you know, when you've got a very complex world, um, that a very complex application that, that is using multiple threads, um, and you start using locks to control access to those threads, you often have errors or you have performance problems. Uh, Software right. Transactional Memory is trying to provide you a new tool to use that will help you both from just the conceptual point of view to do it right, and secondly, from a performance point of view. You want to add anything, Yossi? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so if, if we take a step back, why, why do we care about it all of a sudden? Well, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners uh, have heard that um, um, processors are not uh, able to crank up their speeds as fast as they used to. Um, so right. we're seeing a kind of a plateau in, in, the, in the rate in which processors go faster and faster uh, in their clock speeds. But on the other hand, uh, hardware manufacturers are telling us that they can put more computing units on a die. So this is how you get multi-core and many cores. And um, all of a sudden, in order for your software to take advantage of that, you need to know about all of these arcane stuff of interlocked classes and locks and uh, uh, interleaving between what different threads do. Right. And because, because we have a change in, in, in the way we view hardware, which is something that, you know, to be very honest, you know, nobody really is excited about that. It would have been much easier if we, if we could have continued thinking in serial terms. Uh, so because we can't do that anymore, we need to start thinking of abstractions that will give us this um, uh, sort of illusion that one thing happens at a time. And we have one good precedent to draw on, uh, which is uh, database transactions. Mm. So, you know, with database transactions, people have this concept of a transaction, which is a piece of serial code, which no matter what it contains is, is well isolated from the rest of the world. So we, to some great degree, try to emulate that in the, you know, mainline um, .NET programming uh, languages world. And Dana, what you said before uh, about having five integers that need to update in an atomic way, the first thought that came to my mind was kind of like a transaction. Now, just before I ask you what software transactional memory is and how it works, let, uh, d let's just clarify, this is now available in .NET 4, right? Well, I want to be clear. Yes, it's available in, in .NET 4, but in an experimental release. And so what we have uh, is on MSDN are these things called Dev Labs, or the Developer Labs, mm -hmm. and we provide experimental releases, um, 
you know, uh, on, on languages, on in our case, on frameworks, that we want people to use to try to give us a lot of feedback on what they like, what they don't like, um, so that we can then decide if we're going to put them in, in the mainline product um, or change them, maybe have another dev lab or um, maybe, uh, you know, put this into a release. And, and all that comes from the feedback that we get from users like yourself. Um, and, you know, for instance, this organization, the Parallel Computing Group, um, also put out a, a parallel language uh, called uh, Axum. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that went out, I went, what was it, Yossi, was it February? Uh, I don't April, remember. April, maybe? Uh, anyway, earlier this year. Um, and, you know, so Software Transactional Memory is, is kind of our next dev lab, and we want to see how people use it and what they think of that and if they find that useful. And instead of a, a whole language, what we did is we put it actually in the .NET framework. So it's not a new version of the framework, really. We just took the beta 1 version, and then we enhanced it with uh, software transactional memory. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, you're going to see this in beta 2 um, or in dev 10, uh, or I should say in, in .NET 4.0. Um, it, it's an experimental release. Okay. You haven't necessarily committed to shipping it yet, but letting people test with it in the beta one. All right. Now let's get into what is it and how does it work? Well, let's see. We uh, only have an hour, so we can't go into the deep nitty-gritty. Okay. Uh, How do you use it? The basics of it is that I can designate a, a, a region of code as running in completion or... Um, or not, right? So I can say, do the following, in this case, I usually use a lambda, but I do the following uh, atomically. And what I mean by atomically is that all the changes are isolated from other threads that are also within an atomic block. And um, and I'm also isolated from anybody else's changes. So I, I get to see one version of all my data, and I get to you know, party on that data, and if anybody else is also doing work there, either they're totally isolated from me, so they're just reading, or if they do something like write to some data that I'm dependent on, not changing, well, then I'll re-execute. And so um, we have logic built into the JET that generates uh, code that says, you know, I'm going to you know, create a copy of some data under the covers. You don't have to worry about that. When I write to it, I'm going to make sure that things haven't changed. I, we have, we have, you know, we've modified things in the object headers so that we can pay attention to whether or not data has changed or not. You know, all that is all under the covers, all done by the JET, um, so that you don't have to. You just get to say atomic dot do, and then you know, give it give it a lambda. And everything just runs um, atomically is the is the terms that we use, but you know in this isolated atomic way. So the whole thing has to execute successfully or effectively. None of it does. And did I hear you correctly? It'll rerun it to try again if it's something goes wrong. Um, yes, this is what we do. So um, yeah, unlike a database transaction, um, in in the release that we have right now. Uh, a transaction will re-execute automatically for you until it commits successfully. What would cause it to not commit successfully? A race condition? Yes, 
you're trying to change data that uh, another transaction also tries to modify or read. So if we go back to the database analogy, suppose we have a database of uh, employee uh, records, okay, and one transaction tries to um, look up somebody in the database and uh, increase their salary by an amount. And another transaction tries to sum all the, sum, the salaries of all employees to see what's the total salary that we have to pay as an organization, okay? So these two transactions are going to conflict, right? So how does the database uh, take care of that for us? First, you know, we, we have to recognize that as a user, unless we're experts, we don't specify to to SQL Server or to whatever database you use, what to lock. You know, the database understands automatically, uh, and it has some sort of a lock hierarchy. There are right. locks for uh, uh, rows and locks for tables, and you can take them in different ways. So similarly, you know, suppose that you had um, in memory a hash table of your employees, and uh, you wanted to do the same thing. Well, you could do it with stm.net. And similarly, we have all sorts of hidden locks uh, that we also can take in read mode or in write mode on different objects, and we place those locks automatically on these objects, and you just have to write your code, and the system automatically uh, figures out what it is that you're reading, what it is that you're writing, and it takes the locks for you. So it really sounds like a magic bullet for for dealing with uh and obviously you know you're thinking uh, listeners are thinking okay but you pay a performance penalty but the idea is if we understand correctly that well yes but now that you have all of your stuff parallelized and running on multiple threads without having to worry about race conditions you're getting an overall performance benefit so and the race conditions rarely happen which is you know the theory that there's something could uh, execute successfully a million times before a race condition happens. So when it does happen, yeah, you'll get a you'll get a blurb. Okay, maybe I'm not as convinced. In a SQL Server world, say you're doing the the, the scenario Yossi you just described. So I do this group query that to pull together all the salaries, and while that query is running, an update comes to one of the salaries. By default configuration of SQL Server, the update will be blocked until the group query completes. But I can't imagine that STM works that way. Right. So that's a, that's a very good uh, point. And, um, yes, so it's reasonable to think that the defaults will be different. Um, but it's also reasonable to expect that when contention does happen, you do converge to a behavior that's similar to, to a database in the sense that locks are pessimistic. Right. And their granularity kind of escalates over time into locking something bigger and bigger. So most of STMs and ours included start from a very uh, optimistic assumption that things right. are not going to collide. Right. And and that allows us to um, do reads in an optimistic manner. So uh, if you have a solution, uh, uh, a scenario that's kind of heavily biased towards lookup and uh, less change of data or the changes of data are isolated and are not, uh, um, are not conflicting, then this assumption works fairly well. So if, if, we, if we go back to the database of employees example, you know, if you're just looking up employees or changing a particular employee's data, then these things do not tend to, to collide with each other. 
but as you run those, uh, you know, sweeping uh, queries that um, roll up all of the employee information, yeah, that's likely to clash with other things. So, um, yeah, and that's, that's uh, an area where we call, where we invoke uh, the term um, contention management, which is an active uh, research area. Right. Uh, we've experimented with a few schemes. And this could be, we think that, you know, in, in 10 years or so, this could be one of the secret sauces of uh, the CLR or other virtual machines, you know, the, the same way that garbage collection is today. Right, you right. Have, uh, you have this thing, this kind of semi-magical thing that happens behind the scene. It needs to be robust. It needs to service um, uh, the main scenarios that users want to do efficiently. It's a predictable uh, performance. And this is definitely, you know, one of those areas that uh, more work is needed to, to put something of the maturity of the CLR that we see today. This is exactly why STL is still in uh, incubation and not a, not a product. Uh, I just have a, a burning question, which is, and we'll get back into that. Um, do you use threads normally? You know, do I do I use the same threading model now with STM that I did before? It's except that I don't use locks. Yes, actually, you can use a standard threading model. Um, since we're .NET 4.0, you can you can use the parallel extensions. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing is that within the transaction, you cannot create a thread. So there's things that you can do inside. Mm transactions, and there's things you can't, things that are transaction-safe and things that are not transaction-safe. One of the things that is not transaction-safe is to create another threat. Aha. Uh -huh. But isn't it true that your most code that's atomic doesn't do that, or would you say? Uh, you know, I, I, I can come up with scenarios where I might want to do that, mm. and we even have some designs on how to handle that. Mm. Um, for this particular experimental release, we don't support it. And by the way, when you get into the research literature, they, that's called parallel nested transactions. Mm -hmm. And while we support nesting of transactions, so I can have an atomic inside an atomic, right. and that's fine, um, we don't, we don't uh, support parallel nesting, which is to say have multiple threads within one atomic block. Um, that's, that's an added level of complexity that we didn't, we didn't tackle for an experimental release. We have ideas how to fix that. Yeah, uh, if I want to add to that, um, so in uh, Visual Studio uh, uh, 2010, the, the upcoming release of Visual Studio, uh, we have a lot of support added for all sorts of new um, threading models. Uh, we have um, Parallel 4 in the Task Parallel Library, and that's a way to do structured parallelism, which is something that wasn't there in .NET before. So you can basically say, instead of my serial loop, I'm going to have my parallel loop, essentially. Um, and that brings a lot of structure into the parallelism that you can use in your application in, in the places where it makes sense to do that. But because it's so well structured, um, you do want to allow nesting that inside the transaction. And, um, yeah, and, and this is, uh, again, one area that... Uh, uh, we need to uh, kind of uh, see how these two things uh, gel together. And, uh, yeah, this is going to be exciting to, to look at. Back to the usage uh, questions. Do you, do you just decorate uh, the code that you want to be atomic with attributes? Is that how it works? Basically, yeah, the attributes are, are 
I want to say, uh, say optional, but if you opt into using them, you can get a lot from that. And so we have provided a fairly rich set of attributes uh, that um, allow you to uh, define both methods that you want to call or don't call. You know, so you're allowed to call them or you're not allowed to call them within a transaction or you may call them within a transaction. And um, you also, we've allowed you to put these attributes on data as well. So you can specify that this field must be updated within a transaction. Oh, wow. Okay. And so that's, what's really nice about that is that you can now start doing some static checking and mm. saying, oh, look it, this field wasn't protected nice. by a transaction. And, um, you know, and that just shows up before I, I ever execute the code. Just by, in one place, putting an attribute saying, hey, protect this field all the time. Make sure it's protected. That's great. Yeah. And, wow. and so that's, what, that's, what, that's the beauty of the attributes. Um, at the same point, we, we, for this experimental release, we, we spread those attributes around the, 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 the BCL to try to help you say, Yes, you can call this within a transaction. Oh, no, you don't want to call that within a transaction. That's going to do a P invoke. Yes, you can call this, you know, because it's all, it's all managed code and it's all memory operations. That's great. Oh, no, you can't call that because it's writing to a disk. You know, so that type of, that, that type of thing. Hmm. And we've added also support for traditional transactions. I, I use the term traditional transactions to think of SQL transactions. Uh, out of the box, we, we support MSMQ. Um, and you could support SQL, but we didn't spend the, the huge effort that it would take to support all the uh, SQL APIs out of the box. But uh, you, you, could pop, you could write wrappers yourself to do that. That's an interesting point. How does this interact with something like system.transactions namespace, where you can use... Uh, you know, uh, where you can do transactions in the system, like complus transactions or, or database transactions. I mean, those things, that stuff is already done. How can, how can the two work together? Well, that, that actually was part of our, our effort, an area we were hoping people would experiment with. Um, we think that people will find that this is kind of a natural extension to traditional transactions. Mm. I'm going to update that hash table. Right. But I'm going to update it from reading something in, in the database. Right. And I want to make sure they're consistent. So I can just say atomic.do, write, you know, do my SQL query, and then write all that into the hash table as one atomic operation. Atomic.do allow, uh, you know, under the covers, will start that system about transaction if there isn't one available. So atomic.do is your, your keyword, sort of like a... Uh, a do in a loop to say everything between these two things is uh, is transactional? Yeah, exactly. So uh, there's a class called Atomic, and there's a static method called do, and it takes a delegate. Oh, I see, so, I see. So you write atomic.do, okay, open uh, paren, yeah. then you can put your uh, uh, lambda in there, and that's done in a transaction. Nice. Wow, clean. So basically, uh, like Dana said, that also automatically promotes itself into a system transaction. Right. And that's, um, I, I have one technical comment and one sociological comment about that. <laughs> right. when, when, so so Dana, Dana and uh, Sasha, and uh, also me to some extent, we've worked on uh, traditional transactions before that. 
before oh. we started working on STM. Okay. And when we came to the STM community, we saw that basically almost everybody there were co- compiler people. And they were just thinking about STM in terms of, you know, uh, compiler transformations and jitting and stuff like that. And there was nobody in the community that came from transaction. Hmm. And, uh, and, and we have some experience with Microsoft that, hey, people already use transactions. Right. It means something to them, right? So let's make these two things work together. And that was, I think, uh, a unique contribution of, of this project. Wow. And uh, from a technical perspective, it was also clear that you cannot replace, you know, a simple lock with something that initiates a DTC or a complex transaction. So we built it in a way that you start, you start lightweight, and only if you need to, you know, really use a big transaction, then uh, you kind of on the fly upgrade to uh, to a big to a big transaction. Nice. So it has uh, the performance profile that that you wanted to to have. And actually, when we do our performance profiling, we discovered that the uh, the I/O overhead of system transactions, um, or the traditional uh, uh, resource managers that system transactions works with. Um, so dominate the performance picture that what little um, overhead that we have in STM is, is, is noise. <laughs> you, you can't actually measure it in wow. the context in that context. Let, let, let me put this in, a, in another way. So suppose I have a database transaction, okay? Uh, do today using you know uh, using new transaction scope from the system dot transactions namespace, okay? So I do this type of transaction, and I'm accessing a database today in my .NET code. Now let's replace that with an atomic.do that I'm doing the same thing. But in addition, I'm also modifying my memory in, uh, in an atomic manner together with the database transaction. So the incremental cost of managing my memory state together with my SQL state with an atomic.do is completely dwarfed by the cost of the uh, database transaction. Yeah, it's the difference between nanoseconds and milliseconds. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So you get all of the design and productivity benefits of, you know, just talking about one atomic state across your memory and database uh, with virtually no, no perceivable cost uh, in terms of performance. What happens with the whole retry mechanism if you've got a database transaction involved as well? Ah, okay. So <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a very good point, and basically it doesn't work uh, at this point. What it requires is, is extending the notion of a basic transaction with all sorts of uh, notification and retry mechanisms. You basically want to be able to park a database transaction and say, you know, like have a blocking select type of mechanism, right? So SQL has some, something along these lines, but it's not something that's standardized into uh, system transactions. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the RAD control suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for line-of-business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their RAD control suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. 
So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, well, in system transactions, you're somewhat transparent to the actual database, so different databases behave differently around that, that kind of scenario. I mean... When we write T-SQL code that's transactional like that, we do have trapping for failed transactions because sometimes we want to act differently. So I'm I'm sort of comfortable either way there with, if you just want to fail me and make me write some code to say, okay, I had a transactional failure, what do I want to do now? I'm okay with that. Uh, but that's me. I, I, I get the idea that the way you're doing it right now, it's as transparent as possible for existing developers. They don't need to know much to make this work. Right. We we ha- we cover this actually fairly well on the programming model uh, and programming guide. Um, the you know, it, when you start nesting transactions, whether you are saying using the system transaction and then you do an atomic do, or you do an atomic do on the outside and, and do it, this is when you start getting into some kind of hazy areas in the model. In general, it works. Um, we've done some optimizations, and I think. We actually did ship those optimizations. I'm looking at Yosi here um, to make sure that in, in, in the case of, of working with traditional transactions, um, we don't retry very often. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen because if you retry with a system transaction, that means you abort the transaction and you have to start a new transaction. Right. You know, that's when the system transaction is nested inside the atomic do. You could do that. We don't want to do that very often. And so it, from a framework point of view, once we realize that we are working with a, um, a, a traditional transaction, instead of being optimistic in our concurrency control, we become pessimistic and we use traditional locks right. in that particular environment. So you would only roll back and re-execute if there was a deadlock. Right. Yeah, where an unresolvable lock and I want to free all my locks and try again and hopefully the other guy wraps up so my locks are no longer conflicting. Right. And that and and you know, if you get into a deadlock situation like that, this is your best hope. <laughs> so yeah. that that's that's why we, we try to reduce the thrashing on SQL, but at the same time uh allow you to, to uh compose these two different type of transactional worlds together. And in this particular environment, once we realize we're working with a pessimistic resource manager, the uh, the, the the memory system will also become fairly pessimistic um, and and detect deadlocks if it can. Um, I'm not sure if there's ever a case we can't, but I think we will just detect that. Because this whole nanoseconds versus millisecond things now works against you once you start retrying. Yeah. Yeah, right. and that's so we try to minimize that as much as possible. But again, remember what you know. What is the what is the average uh, mean time between between uh, race conditions? Uh, you know, it's something like you know, uh, more than ninety percent of the locks out there are unneeded. Right. 
um, you know, you find it actually uh, sometimes funny in your test environments if you have uh, environments where you can actually turn your locks off or make them no ops, and you just run your program, and you're like going, it works. Right. Why does it work? Um, and, you know, it, bluntly, it works really well on your two-core machines, but when you put it on your 16 cores, you start seeing those race conditions. Hmm. But, uh, you know, but they've done some academic papers about, you know, how often do I really need my lock? And, and the answer is not very often. A lot of locks are simply there um, as, as, you know, protection of, you know, just in case. Right. Um, and and are, are totally unnecessary. Um, and a lot of locks you'll find are actually taken, used all within a single thread, that particular, whatever they're protecting is always used within that single thread. And so they would have never needed to take that lock because it was always just a single thread accessing that, that resource. And this is one of the advantages of STM being optimistic. Right. Is that it can sit there and say, hey, I don't need to take a lock until I'm really at the very last minute figuring out whether or not I can commit all my actions. Right. What's, in other words, what's the performance overhead of all those locks? Yes, that's, that's a very good uh, point. Um, so, you know, yeah. suppose you have uh, some sort of a hash table that today you would like to protect with uh, uh, for, for reading and writing. And suppose that you predominantly do reads. So the best practice today that people would do is create a reader-writer lock yeah. to protect the entire hash table. Uh, so, you know, and, and how is that reader-writer lock implemented? Well, it's implemented using this thing that you introduced in the beginning of the program today. Which is uh, the interlock uh, interlock class, right? Right. So the interlock class, in order to say that I'm reading something that that you know I've taken a read lock, I need to change state, and that's the state of the lock, mm. and I have to do it atomically. Well, as I'm looking at uh, at multi cores, this shared state is kind of bouncing between the different caches of the different CPUs. Right. And, um, you know, just in order to read something, I need to change something. Yeah. So in order to read, I have to write. Right. <laughs> Locks basically turn a read scenario into a write scenario. And you can see in our programming guide in Chapter 11 how acute this can sometimes turn in terms of, you know, the contention that you introduce. And it just doesn't scale. So this is where uh, transactions and optimistic execution have uh, a promise of better scaling and better performance at higher cores. Right, and that's that's really the key is at higher cores. What where is the uh, where is the threshold? Do you see, or is there? Can I can that even be quantified in terms of number of cores? We've done we've done some theoretical analysis of that, and I, I'm trying to remember what the exact number was, but in my head, it's something like five cores. Um, but, you know, you, you've got a serial slowdown. This is really what, what we're all dancing around here, that if you are just measuring code running inside a, a, an atomic block, it's slower than the same code that's running inside a lock. If right. you just compare them A to B. And it's slower because we've had to instrument that code to, um, you know, basically read and when you're writing to, you know, create a, a, a shadow copy and, you know, to do a commit type of action at the end. It's an overhead that can easily be amortized, um, but that overhead does exist. And you will, you will see that when you're just doing 
comparisons of the serial execution. Now, that's kind of unfair. You need to actually take a look at the execution in parallel. In, you know, how well does this scale? And you start seeing real-world um, positive uh, performance about four cores with STM. Hmm. Um, and once you've gotten to six or eight cores, you are now really exceeding what you could have done with lock. You with, couldn't you know, have done a, it. a course reader-writer lock, let's say. Hmm. Yeah, so um, so the, the performance uh, slowdown that you get with STM on a, on a single thread is a real serious problem. So, you know, just, just like Dana said, it's, it's something that around, you know, it's not 5%, it's five times, or if it's not five, then four or three times. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, kind of really a, re- a real noticeable slowdown if it's really something that's in your hot path. You mean a single core, not a single thread, right? A well, single core, right. Yeah. 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 Run, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think, it, you know, STM would have been a much easier sell if it wasn't the case. Right. And there are many things that we sh- we could do, but I think uh, what it really boils down to is that developers have to say we like this programming model. If they say we like this programming model, then there is definitely stuff that the hardware vendors can do. Hardware vendors can support um, hardware transactions, and hardware transactions will really lower the the, the slowdown to you know, uh, pers- you know. A number of percent uh, relative to your serial execution. A couple of extra cycles is what we're looking at there. Um, the, the, the hardware solution would be is, is a really great thing, but all hardware is also bounded. That's right. And so you need to have a software fallback. Right. And one of the things that that we've done research on, and I would say some of our our our, our friends and and competitors have done research on, is how to also create hybrid. Um, mixtures of hardware and software transactional memory. There's a lot of really promising work there. This reminds me of uh, the whole virtual machine movement where we had it with just software at first, but it wasn't until uh, Intel and AMD, those guys started putting in some some CPU-level and, and hardware-level optimization that, that virtual machines suddenly just rocked. It worked great, but it was a synthesis. It wasn't one product. It was a little bit of both. I think that's, a, that's an excellent uh, comparison, right? So the question is, is the marketplace in general going to put uh, any sort of uh, value on this scenario that uh, will push us and our hardware partners to, uh, to optimize it? Well, and there's an interesting chicken and egg angle here, too, because we're right now avoiding writing parallel code because it's so hard, and we're and this is supposed to make it easier, but we're only going to see the benefit because of the overhead that this method occurs when we have enough parallelism happening. Yes, you hit it on the head, and it's one of the reasons why this is a dev lab and not a, an actual release, and... Um, you know, at, at the same point, I, I will point out to everybody who's going, oh, my God, is he talking how many times overhead? I'm going to ask how much of your code is within locks. And, and mm. think back to your database programming here. What do you know about database programming when you write a transaction? You keep your transactions really small. Right, yeah. Right? 
Yeah, if you don't keep it small, those locks just, you know, dominate now uh, your, your whole your whole database system, and it brings everybody down. And They'll so, eat you alive. Right. So you start, to, you start thinking differently, and you say, I've got this really easy tool, and I need to use it in small sections. I'm not going to say atomic.do in Maine, okay? I'm not going yeah. to do that in Maine. I want to do it on the leaves. I want to do it in yeah. small portions of my code. That I need to, you know, I need to take five integers as a way to start with, right? I need to take five integers and make them all atomically updated while reading those five integers somewhere else, right? That's not a huge operation. I need it to be small. Because of overhead, I want it to be enough. I probably don't want to just add one integer, but that's what the interlock's for. Uh, but, <laughs> but I do want, you know, when I want, when I have, you know, a, a, a small number of operations, you know, maybe a routine, maybe a couple of routines, you know, a couple of thousand cycles. You know, that's a great environment to use SDM. And by the way, it doesn't matter if it's 20 times slower because it's such a small section of your your application, you can't measure it. Right. Yeah, but again, we're back to that whole nanosecond thing. So you went from 5 nanoseconds to 25 nanoseconds. Yeah. Right, and and you ran this a hundred times, and you still can't measure it. Yeah, you, you, any given one, you can't measure it. If you're doing billions of them, it's going to matter. But since we're rarely doing billions of anything, it's probably not a big deal. That's right. So, so this is the type of you know arguments we get in in the industry where we we take a look at some micro benchmark and we go, oh my god, and then we take we stand back and we say, well, if I look at the big picture, that's not much of anything. Yeah. Right. So you know, if I want to look at a pimple on somebody's face and say, "Oh my God, it's ugly," or do I want to stand back and I go, "Oh, hey, actually, it looks kind of like Marilyn Monroe." It's beautiful. <laughs> okay. I, I was I was wondering who you're going to choose. <laughs> uh, no. Somebody tells me somebody tells me he rolled out the pimple scenario before. Ah. <laughs> Hey, I just went out to Newegg, by the way, and I looked at motherboards and CPUs, and you know, under a thousand bucks, you can get a a quad CPU motherboard with you know each of those with a quad core C- CPU. So you could have sixteen cores for for not a lot of money these days, right, right now. Probably each one of them is uh, dual threaded too. Yeah, right. So that gives you thirty-two hardware threads simultaneously. Right. So the i seven. From Intel, they're you know they're four cores hyper-threaded, so those are eight hardware cores. Uh, they released the i5, I want to say today, and last I checked, that was like two hundred dollars for the chip. Right. Um, you know, four cores, four real hardware cores, two hundred bucks. Yeah. They're paying fifty dollars a hardware core. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Right. Yeah. So I I got to think in in the STM shipping horizon. You're going to have routinely four core machines, and it's not going to be that hard to find eight and sixteen core machines. Right. I say the old machines will be four core machines. Right. Because the four core machines are now. Right. Yep. And get four core laptops, which I'm having a tough time justifying. Yeah. <laughs> so not everything in the Dev Labs is about parallelism. There's STM.net, obviously, which is your project. And then there's also Axum. Do we need both of these to work together, or are they independent of each other? Are they competitors to each other? Um, let me take that. 
So, unfortunately, they don't work together. They're in in our minds, they're not at all competitors to each other. They're uh, complementary of each other, and uh, they're coming from the same team, which is the parallel computing platform team within Microsoft and uh, developer division. Um, so, if we if we if we take a step back from STM, we, we've talked about all this parallelism. Um, you you have you have a few ways to do parallelism, and our goal in in the parallelism group here is to find a few paradigms that work well and see how they combine together. So uh, one way that people have been successful with parallelism is using transactions. Another thing that people have been using is basically communicating processes. Uh, you know, message passing. Um, uh, it goes back to uh, the academic work by uh, by uh, Hoare about um, uh, communicating uh, processes and uh, all this uh, process algebra. And people even use it routinely without knowing. You know, when you when you write like on your command shell, you write a pipeline expression, right? You know, uh, do uh, a sort and then uh, feed that into uh, uh, oak or something, and then uh, feed that into word count. Uh, you've done there a pipeline expression that allows these three processes to run to run in parallel, right? Right. Uh, so we 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 acknowledge that this is a useful uh, way to do parallelism, and uh, this is the design point behind Axum. Uh, but we feel that Axum will be be will be best suited for extracting the high level or coarse uh, parallelism in your application. So when you do a top down breakdown of your application, you know you may have a main uh, window, and then you have some uh, computation. Uh, engine that uh, is on the side, and you may have some indexing or uh, another window or uh, you know something that monitors the network, all sorts of components in your application. Uh, you can break them down into agents. And XM is an agent language. And right. it allows you to, to you know kind of think of these agents as, as components that are uh, independent of each other, except uh, for uh, the messages that they exchange. And those messages are essentially just uh, .NET objects with a schema, and uh, Axum supports uh, um, uh, WCF uh, data binding and uh, message types. Um, so uh, it could potentially also scale to the cluster. Uh, this is also something that we're looking into. So we see that uh, as, as tackling the, the coarse grain parallelism problem. And while you're inside an agent, or if you had, uh, if you have a set of closely related agents, they may want to share data, and this is where transactions can help you with that. Or if an agent wants to talk to a database, for example, right? This is again where transactions come into play. So we see both of these things uh, playing together. Another thing that an agent might want to do is, uh, you know, leverage the GPU. Which is another right. uh, type of uh, parallelism that uh, you know start starts really becoming more and more relevant for general uh, computations. So we're looking at these three things and how we can combine them together, and we we view our role as coming with a holistic story for for parallelism. But unfortunately, we're still taking baby steps here, and Axum is not yet well integrated with uh, STM at this point. So please do check them both uh, separately, and um, we would 
really welcome feedback on, on both of them. We did a show on Axum back in May of 2009. And I, I think you've really sort of talked around an issue here, which is STM doesn't make your programs parallel. It just makes your parallel programs safe. Right. And lock free. Right. Right. And it, it's a, it's the safe parallelism using STM, um, that, that we're providing. Axum, in many ways, is taking out of the equation shared state. Right. Okay, so that, that, that's its emphasis is, you know, let's talk about your, your, your kind of these each agent and each, you know, I want to say uh, isolated domain of, of effort and, and creating these separate um, and, but communicating pieces. And, the, and so it defines the communications between those pieces. And then within the piece is when you start working with shared data across multiple threads. Or maybe you're just single-threading it. Um, that's yeah, the, either way. The way you can get parallelism within uh, agents is, is mostly using structured parallelism. So one thing that we're doing for uh, Dev 10 is uh, P-Link, a parallel implementation or, of Link. Right. right? Or, or uh, Parallel 4, which is another part of uh, the thread parallel library. Um, so all of these things introduce structured parallelism, which from the programmer's point of view, it looks pretty much like serial code. But actually, it does inject parallelism into your program. So we must bring safety there, too. Um, and this is where STM could play a part uh, inside Axum. In addition to that, Axum also has this notion of domains, which is uh, kind of... Uh, so, so this is where Axum is a hybrid model between pure communicating agents and threads that can share memory, in the sense that um, Axum agents that live in the same domain can share data, so they can read and write the same data and communicate using uh, shared data rather than message passing. So there, too, they need um, some sort of scalable protection from race condition. Now I'm getting, I'm putting all the bits together that we've just talked about so far and realizing, okay, the overhead of STM only offsets its performance potential around the six-core mark but that also implies then that I've got work I'm doing that's going to parallelize out that many processes. Mm. And that's an interesting challenge. I mean, it's obviously this sort of classic scenarios for massively parallel work, but it's not always easy to look at your average CRUD app and say, okay, how do I go massively parallel here? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, think about, you know, think about maybe an application which, takes a large data structure, maybe some big XML uh, tree structure you've got, right? Yeah. And then blasts it across a whole bunch of threads. And then each one of those threads, or maybe you want to call them tasks, completes. And now it has to reassemble everything. Okay? The, yeah. uh, the process of reassembly is one where you're working with shared state. Yep. And so within the reassembly of the completion of these, that's where you would then use your transaction. So notice, I didn't use my transaction for the majority of the work. I used it for this one small isolated section, which, by the way, if I tried to do fine-grained locking, I would pull my hair out. And I, yes. I know this because I've talked to some really brilliant architects who are doing just that type of, of job right now inside of Visual Studio. And, and it's... 
it's painful for them. And they would love to have something like transactional memory. Um, And, you know, so they have to do fine-grained locking in a way that will not deadlock, that will scale, you know, in a very small constrained section of of the application. But it's really hard for them to get it right. And so I'm saying, hey, it's a small section. Yeah, it's hard to get it right, but if you use STM, it's now much easier to express what right is, and then it just works. Okay, maybe it doesn't work as well as if you had fine-tuned it with really fine-grained locks and you got everything ordered perfectly. And you've covered every scenario. How long would it take you to do that? And at the end, do you really believe you got it right? Yep. Yeah, it comes down to philosophy and so at some point. It's just, you can't test it. It's te- multi-threaded programming is notoriously difficult to test. And I like, for that matter, I like what you said about having these compiler checks where you can put constraints on fields and say, protect this field. Don't even, you know, give me a compile time error. if, uh, Or is it a runtime error or a compile time error that you get on those constraints? We, we have both. Nice. So you can you can either do uh, you know uh, relaxed checking or strict checking at either compile time or runtime. Um, Ling Lee just did a great blog post yeah. on on that, and if you go to the uh, STM team site on 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 uh, HTTP blog.msdn.com slash STM team, uh, you can read about that. Right. So yeah, uh, we we. We wanted to balance between a world where uh, nobody knows anything about transaction, so you want to start playing with it really easily, uh, and a world where things are more statically checked and are more rigorous. So um, in order to get to the latter, we have the ability to relax some of the checks at compile time, and then uh, you trade them into runtime exceptions. So this allows you to experiment and say, hey, you know, I've got this component. Let me just try and run it inside a transaction. And I know it might not be the safest thing in the world, but I just want to play with it. Mm-hmm. So that allows you to do that and get a runtime exception if, if really it's something that we can't handle. And, you know, that, yeah, I was just thinking, great proof. If uh, parallel programming was easy, everybody would be doing it. So right. the fact that people aren't doing it, that it's so hard to do, right now is the proof that we need something like this to try and simplify it in exchange for that that cost and overhead. Well, it seems to me this is a fundamental shift in in the the way that programming parallel programming is done to the point where I think people will just leave simply leave their locks behind. I mean, if this works as well as what we have now, even doesn't even have to work as well as what we have now because what we have now really blows. <laughs> you know, I mean just terms of i mean it works but doing it is really a pain yeah yeah i think i think you know we're we're starting to be on this curve where you know it's getting closer to the point where it makes sense for you to really start thinking about this seriously and um and and we're kind of there to start kind of guide guide people as they're as they're struggling with this question but uh, you know, nobody knows where it's going to head at the end of at the end of the day. I I think that this problem is just going to reoccur and and uh, become uh, more and more acute with time, because uh, you know we're just getting more and more cores, 
the physical problems are there. They're yeah. not going away. Right. Um, even if you look at GPU programming, it's becoming the GPUs are becoming more and more like uh, multi cores, and you know you get shared state and all that stuff. So you know there's some sort of convergence into into this really multi multi core uh, architecture across both CPUs and GPUs. And uh, hey, if if you write software and it has to be competitive from a performance point of view, you need to find a way to keep you both productive and competitive with with your with with other uh, people who write software. So I think you know it's, it, people will not be able to escape this at the end of the at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm not sure whether this abstraction is the best one or not. Nobody is really is at this point, but you know we'd like to to help with that and. Um, this is why we, we did this release, so that we can get feedback. Well, it certainly sounds like the right programming model. I can't imagine it being any easier. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. There, there was a, there's a lot, there's a great enthusiasm around the programming model. Uh, the, the problem is that, you know, people are kind of looking at the words, and there, frankly, there are quite few of them, not the list of problem with serial performance. Right. Right, so, yeah, uh, we need some faith in, in that technology at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to continue to learn and continue to have pain, and people are going to continue to try to scale their applications up. I've talked to many customers that are really afraid to to write multi-threaded applications because they've got serial code that works, and yeah, it's slow, but it works. And, um, you know, I, I talked to our test team, and it's very hard to test these things. Um, and you talk to the tools people, and they go, hey, I, I don't even know what people are trying to, to protect, not to mention whether or not it's a real race condition or not. Right. And, you know, STM has a solution in all of those domains. So it really does have a lot of promise. Um, there has to be demand, um, and we have to get through this chicken and egg problem of people really needing it, so that we can make a product, so that we can have hardware that supports that product, um, and so on. One last question. How do you force a race condition to test your software? I mean, you guys, Siri, in the, in the lab, when you're testing this stuff. Excellent question. So one of the things that we, we've done is partner with uh, Microsoft Research. Uh, we have uh, uh, Shaz Kadir. Uh, who is uh, leading a research effort into uh, verifying concurrent uh, programs. And our test team here, uh, led by Chris Dern, basically said, okay, you know, we have this thing called transactions. Does it simplify in any way the task of um, verifying parallel programs? These guys have come up with a, with a, a kind of a proof of concept that uh, shows how to go after finding concurrency bugs by uh, perturbing uh, the scheduling of your threads. And um, the fact that you're working with a transaction is kind of a simplifying assumption here. Right. Because uh, basically transactions are all or nothing. So, you know, uh, you have less chunks of code to kind of, um, you know, interleave against each other. Two transactions, by definition, never race from a programming model point of view. Right. So, so um, the, the problem with all this uh, state exploration type of problem is, is that 
you know, the, you, there's like an exponential number of, of ways to interleave threads. And um, they've come up with a very interesting uh, way to kind of budget how, how much you want to spend on finding uh, iterations. And it's basically it's based on saying how many times do you assume the operating system is going to preempt your thread and uh, switch it with another thread. Right. Uh, which is similar to saying, you know, what is the likelihood of this code running in parallel really with that code? So, you know, so you take two threads and then you say, okay, you know, suppose they interleave only here. And then you increase the budget and you say, okay, suppose they interleaved in two points, then in three points, four points. And this way you kind of increase your budget, uh, increase, increase your budget over time. And, uh, you know, and this can, from, from a testing point of view, it gives you a, a concept of coverage, right? So a test person can come and say to, to their uh, development team, hey, you know, I've tested your, your software and it has 100% uh, coverage with, uh, three, uh, with three context switch, but not with four context switch, right? You know, give me another week and I'll cover five and six context switch, right? right. Then you can set all sorts of bars for, for quality like that. Yeah, this is a whole other sort of cyclomatic complexity measurement, probability that you're going to have concurrency issues around code. Yeah, yeah, and, we, and, and, and you know, working for Microsoft, we have some data about that. I bet. So, for example, you know, we figured out that from studying uh, the Windows bug database that almost all, um, almost all race conditions in Windows required less than three context switches to manifest themselves. Whoa. Wow. So you say, hey, you know, if I've got coverage for three context switches anywhere between two competing threads in my code, then I know that, you know, I, I would be able to find at least all of the bugs that were found, uh, you know, in Windows over the last few years. So that gives you some sort of a comparison point. But you also bring up this whole other angle. The heck with the performance benefit of STM. Oh, yeah. Just the ability to debug parallel executing code, oh, to even right. know you were executing in parallel, to know that there was a conflict. Yep. Like right now, that's almost undiagnosable. That's right. Right. You know, I, when, you, when you asked that question, I also wanted to point out that you, you asked, how do we test STM.net? Right. And uh, I want to point you at another dev lab, and that's Chess. We use Chess to, um, you know, basically set up these various interleavings. And you can get that also from the MSAN dev lab site. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the dev labs out there today. And uh, so you can experiment with this test infrastructure, which will uh, force these interleavings. Between, you know, let's say locks. In our case, we were doing them between transactions. Um, but Chris actually did so much really excellent work here um, to help not only our STM.NET effort, but he also was helping the folks over in, uh, in the, the Parallel Extensions group. And I, I don't know, maybe he was doing some work with the Parallel Link guys, um, applying Chess to actually testing our infrastructure. Wow, that's great. So, you know, that that's available for download today as well. So, um, you know, people should check that one out as well. Awesome. Well, we're just about out of time. Wow, this is very exciting news, and uh, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you, guys. Oh, download it today. It's there. I will, and me and my eight cores are going to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, we've got a shrinker year old that will help you out with there. 
HTTP, shrinkster.com, 19, D is in boy, F is in Sam. Excellent. And we'll also have those linked on the site. Great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. And we'll talk to you next time on Don .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm